morning, everyone. Uh, you can be seated. Welcome to Harvest. My name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here. If you're just joining us, uh, thanks for being here with us this morning. We are uh, wrapping up Samuel this morning, both First and Second Samuel. We uh, have been in First and Second Samuel for several months now, and we've been covering it in large portions. Um, so much so that last time I preached, I had four chapters to cover. And so if you listen to that whole 50-minute sermon, sermon, bless you for doing that. I don't plan on doing that again today. I think. Um, no. But this morning, we're just covering chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, and then also just with some cl- concluding thoughts about the book of Samuel as a whole as well. Uh, Matt shared this, I believe, two weeks ago, that, that when we get to the end of Samuel, of 2 Samuel, really the end, the climax, comes at 2 Samuel chapter 20, where it's after Absalom's revolt, but then David's ascension back to the throne. And then Samuel 21 through 24, we kind of, I heard a couple Bible teachers or, or commentaries state that it's kind of like an epilogue or, or an appendix, that th- th- this is a collection of stories from King David's time that aren't necessarily in chronological order, but the author has arranged them in just a way to really conclude Samuel with some concluding ideas and big thoughts about, about who God is really ending with God, that David's story is kind of over in, in, in 2 Samuel 20, and now we're, we're honing, honing in and focusing on the Lord. So let me pray, um, and then as, as I pray, you can, I'd encourage you, if you can, open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 24, and we'll work through that. Lord, this morning as we come before you, God, just on my mind all week is just, Lord, I need your help. And God, we as your people, we, we as your creation, we need your help. Not just this morning, Lord, but in this season, in, in, in our cultural climate right now, we need your help, God. We need your help to see you rightly. We need your help to, to know how to follow you well, how to represent you to, to the masses, Lord, to, to people here in Camas, Washougal, Vancouver, but also to the nations as well. We need your help, God, and, and as so many things have been exposed in our hearts this time, we need your help in repenting when our hope has been in things that, that aren't of you. We need your, we need your help, God, when, when we're hurting, when we're afraid, when we're anxious, Lord. We need your help in turning our eyes and fixing our gaze on Jesus. We need our, your help, Lord, in knowing how to love our neighbor, as you say to. We need your help, God, in, in knowing how to respond rightly to the cry of, of, of millions of people crying out for justice to be done due to the injustice of racism. We need your help, God, in knowing how, how to love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, we look to you this morning, Jesus, for your help to navigating this passage and knowing we need your help by your Spirit and by your holy scripture, Lord, to to respond to you rightly. We need your living words. Help us, Lord. In your name, amen. So verse one, has Matt read the whole passage for us just a a second ago? Verse one is is just loaded. It's just loaded. So let's read it again um, together and kind of start to break it down. So it says, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. 
And he incited David against them saying, go and take a census of Israel and of Judah. Right off the bat, God is angry. And we don't know why. It doesn't tell us. We just see that that God is angry against his people again. And before we start to assume why God's angry or or try to think through it, or even we get these guards that go up when we hear about God being angry, we need to think about how we view God's anger versus how we view anger in the rest of the world. Do we view God's anger like God is a child throwing a tantrum because he didn't get something that he wants? Or maybe an adult that's throwing a tantrum because they didn't get something that we want. Is that how we view God's anger? Do we view God's anger like he's just hangry, right? That, that just over time, there's something that he needs that he's not getting, and now he's hangry about it. I don't know about you, but I suffer from hangry. Um, and, and do we view God's anger that way? That when he's just not pleased with something, all of a sudden it's just this snap reaction and starts treating people the way that they shouldn't be treated? Or do we view God's anger as just? Do we view God's anger and in, in how he reveals his nature and his character to us in Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7? Do we trust that this is true about the Lord? The Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. We sang that in 10,000 Reasons. That was pretty cool too. You're, you're rich in love and you're slow to anger. And he's abounding in loving devotion and truth, maintaining loving devotion to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means excuse the guilty. This is the name and character of God that he reveals to Moses and then to us as well as he sets, to set, as he sets out to set his people free. God's anger, unlike our anger, is always justified. Always justified. Anytime we've seen that the, the anger of the Lord burns against his people in the past, it's, it's been due to their rebellion over and over and over again. And this process, as Exodus tells us, is a slow one. God isn't just this snap decision like, all right, I've had it, right? Like he, he's slow to anger because he's abounding in steadfast love. The anger of the Lord is justified. But we see in this passage too, not only is God's anger burning against his people, and most likely this is because there's some, there's some collective sin or rebellion that they're participating in, that they're, they've turned away from the Lord and they've continually done it and haven't repented. But then it says that he incites David to take a census, a military census, and that God is going to use this as the means to judge his people, Israel. Which when we read that, it's like God incites David to take a census. There's a lot going on there. We find out later as we keep reading that this census that David takes, David recognizes this, the census that he took was evil. It, it was sin. And, and we'll talk more about that because that can be confusing in and of itself. But if You're reading this for the first time. It's like, wait, so David ultimately takes the census. He sins and God incited him to do that? Does that mean that God could lead someone into sin or lead someone into evil? Because if that's true, do I want to trust a God that might do that? That's thankfully why we need the whole context of Scripture 
the whole character of the Lord. Because even in in 1 Chronicles 21, there's a parallel account of this story that, that just there's some minor tweaks to it. 1 Chronicles 21, 1 says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So 2 Samuel 24, the writer says, God incited. 1 Chronicles 21 says, Satan incited. So who's doing the inciting here? Is it God? Is it Satan? And the simple yet like complex answer is yes. (laughs) That God is leading. God is ordaining. Biblical teachers and scholars can get a little divided here on like the minutia, on the, the details of how this takes place but they all use language that that the Lord ordains, the Lord allows, the Lord permits evil, the Lord even removes himself from the picture and allows evil to run its course for a time so that he can bring salvation and redemption through it. Both judgment on his people for a time, but so that ultimately it points us to salvation. We see similar examples of this with um, a story like Pharaoh in the Old Testament, where where God has sent Moses to, to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh hardens his heart. It starts with inside Pharaoh. He hardens his heart and says, no, I will not respond to your word. Then over time, it, the text changed to God hardens Pharaoh's heart that God takes the evil that exists within Pharaoh, but then bends that evil to his good purposes and plans to save his people. We see this also in 2 Samuel with Absalom as well, that that God allows Absalom to ascend to the throne, but only bring about his own undoing, his own harm because of his ego and his ultimate destruction. Ultimately, the choice to do this census ultimately came from David's heart. There's responsibility here on his end. And it reminds me of of in Genesis, Joseph's story. At the end, after he's been sold into slavery, but now he's he's confronting his, his brothers and he's risen to second in all of Egypt. Joseph tells his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And this breaks all of our categories. We want God to just use good things to bring about good. It's harder for us to understand why God would allow evil, why God would allow brokenness, why God would allow pain, and trusting that he can actually use those very things for good as well. God is the only one that takes broken evil intentions of men and somehow in only his sovereign way bends it toward his redemptive plan. Jen Wilkin, who's a a Bible teacher out of the the village church, I've been listening to this podcast, uh, Knowing Faith, and they talk about um, this section uh, of scripture. And and she she uses this verbiage um, for this section of scripture multiple times. We get the tension of man's responsibility but also God's sovereignty. And that's a tension that we have to stay in. We kind of want it to be one way 
or another. We want it to be, it's all man or it's all God. And yet there's this overlaying that happens. But David takes this census. He orders this census to happen, this military census, in order to to find out how big his army is. And Joab, his, his, his general, his army general, actually warns David against doing this. He tells David that this is not wise. This, you shouldn't do this. And it's not like Joab is a saint. Like as, our, as we spent time in First and Second Samuel, Joab has murdered people. He's lied. But even, it made me think of the say, saying, like even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? That even Joab senses that something is off with what David is doing here. But he follows the king's command. Joab goes out. They do the military census and over a million soldiers are in David's army. But the weird part here is David is quickly overcome by guilt, grief, and and conviction that this military census he took was wrong, was sinful. We're in the middle of a census. Is it wrong and sinful that we're doing a census? If I like put my name in there, am I sinning? My guess is no, right? So you don't have to worry about that. But with what David did here, there is something wrong about this census. He recognizes it as sin. In chapter 24, verse 10, uh, it says this, David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing thing. Sometimes sin is really easy to identify and distinguish. Sometimes it's, it's things like someone steals something. Somebody breaks something purposefully to harm someone else or does physical harm or, or even kills someone. We can, we can easily see and identify like that's not good. That is sin. But sometimes we cannot see what's going on that's sin. Sometimes we can't identify and we can't distinguish. Sometimes people put forward really good things, but beneath the surface, there are false motives and wrong intentions that are hidden. For me, just being as brutally honest with you as I can, sometimes when I'm preaching or teaching a lesson at youth group or leading worship, while in that one, in one moment, I can be praising God and so thankful that he helped me get to this moment and that he's leading me through this. In the next moment in my flesh, I can go, good job, Matt, you're killing it right now. Right? That's just being as real as I can with you. That my flesh cries out like, look at what you're doing, not look at what God's doing. Everyone else, though, is like, look how Matt's leading us right now. Look how Matt's preaching. I, I swear I'm not doing it in this moment. Um, but I wrestle in those moments. It's, it's that, that, that spirit and flesh colliding. It's harder to identify sin when, when outwardly what, what looks good actually has wrong motivations. Jesus even said this about the Pharisees. He said, you're whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you have the best looking casket around, but you're still dead inside. Sometimes good things can mask over our evil intentions and our wrong desires and motivations. We're not exactly sure why this census was sin for David, we can kind of guess or even, even theologians kind of guess or commentators guess that, um, that he, just, he, he wanted to find security in knowing how big his army was. 
he wanted to have hope there. And maybe it was because um, he, he, as Greg has talked about in previous weeks, he no longer had the ability to fight like he could. So he wants to know we've still got it. We still can rock it if we go to war with someone. Maybe he wanted to do a conquest on another nation that wasn't ordained by God. We're not exactly sure. But what we do know is that David was putting his hope in something other than the Lord. David was putting his hope in his military. He was finding his security in his army, not in God. And my question to us this morning is, what are we putting our security in? Where do you find your security? During this season, during during this time, a lot of things for us have been shaken up. There's a lot of things that felt really secure and felt really firm, but now feel like quicksand underneath our feet. All the things that, that, that we felt like were going to be a sure thing for so long are shifting and changing. And quickly, we could lose hope, we could lose faith, we could lose trust in God because it actually exposes that our security and our foundation was in this thing or this, or, or, or this person and not the Lord. The next day, God sends David's seer, Gad, to him with a choice that that ultimately God is using this to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel, but he's using what David did as a means to bring it about. This is verses 13 and 14. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Do not let me fall into the hands of men. This could seem harsh. God's judgment that he's bringing upon his people is either famine, their enemies pursuing and attacking them, or a plague, and different time periods for each one. But we have to remember, for one, that that nobody's innocent here. David is guilty, the people are guilty, and and if we believe what, what God has revealed to us through Scripture, that what sin gains us every time, what sin deserves is death, and that God is slow to anger in bringing this about, that this is just. Consequences for sin are far-reaching. When David chose to take this census with his wrong motives, I don't think he ever had in mind that, man, this could really lead to a plague if I do this. This is how God might respond to this thing. We never do a right sin assessment. When we try to think through the ramifications or the consequences or the blast radius of our sin, we're like, if I just do this little thing here, it's only going to affect me right here and now. But we've seen throughout our time in Samuel, from David's sin with Bathsheba, the blast radius for sin is huge. Whole nations of people have been affected. Families have been destroyed. Brother murdering brother because of it. We can't fool ourselves that we have control over sin. In Romans 6, it says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, 
And that's because we get confused and we think that sometimes we reign over sin. We can just allow this little bit of sin into our life and somehow we can keep it off to the side like, like the girl that your, your wife's not supposed to worry about or your girlfriend's not supposed to worry about. And we can just keep it close, but somehow we have control, we have reign over it. But actually sin reigns over us when we give into it. It's on the throne, not us. David knows this judgment is coming and yet at the same time, he has a faith-filled response to the Lord. He says, let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. In the face of destruction, in the face of judgment, in the face of God's justice, David calls upon God's mercy. He knows that God will be the merciful one. For us right now, are we entrusting ourselves to the Lord's mercy in a time filled with affliction, filled with pain, filled with hurt, filled with anger? Are we relying heavily on the Lord's mercy? I've been thinking about that word entrusting a lot for the last couple months. Uh, uh, We did an online youth group lesson and I told a story about when I first went to Young Life Camp and I led um, a group of, of Young Life students and we did this high ropes course. And this high ropes course is like 70 feet in the air and you have this harness and these tassels and carabiners and you're strapped into this uh, metal wire that runs through the whole course. Uh, and I hate heights. And I'm supposed to be like leading these high school guys through it. And yet I am terrified out of my mind. Um, One student goes before me, thankfully, on the course. And he totally entrusts his well-being to his, his harness, tethers, and carabiners. Because ultimately, even if he falls off the elements, he's only gonna drop a foot or two and be able to hop right back on. And he flew through the course like it was nothing, even at times like grabbing onto his tethers, jumping and just letting it slide across. And he just blew through it. And then there's his fearless leader behind him. As I'm like crawling and sweating and trying not to cry and throw up, I'm like making my way through this thing. And from from people watching, they could go, that dude entrusted himself to his carabiners and tethers. This guy over here, It looks like he's going through this course and it it completely depends on him if he makes it through. As people are watching God's people right now, during this season, during pandemic, during the cry of injustice in our world, as many people are angry and hurt, as there's personal things going on in our, our, our just church body life of people receiving new diagnosis or being laid off from jobs, does it look like we're entrusting ourselves to the Lord? Or does it look like we're just trying to barely scratch and make it our way through that this all relies on us and our ability and our strength to make it through? We are to be a people that entrusts our well-being to God. Verse 15. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba 
died. This amount of loss is devastating. And it's not just devastating to people, it's devastating to the Lord as well. And, and these sections in scripture where we see this much loss that, that God ordains, this can be a hangup at times for people of like, God, can you actually be good? Can I trust you if, if you allow this stuff to happen? And as I was reading this passage and just thinking through that, because I've really wrestled with that during my time following Jesus in the past and presently too, I still come across things in scripture where I wrestle with God and like, what does this mean, Lord? Like, how do I, how do I take this as truth? Help me to understand this more. With this passage, I was thinking, ultimately, do I think I understand the value of human life more than the creator? Do I think I understand the value of human life more than the creator? Because if I believe that God is creator and I, I, if I trust him, I trust that he ultimately understands the value of human life because he gave it to humans. He gave it to his creation. It's his breath in our lungs. Do then I trust in his judgment and justice on his creation as well? If he has the highest value, for humanity? Do I trust his judgment and his justice? We read in this passage, God is grieved and relents from the calamity. He stops the plague before it goes into the city of Jerusalem. Verse 17, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. Imagine being David as he looks out and sees this plague, sees this destruction, and he thinks ultimately it's all his fault. He's not, from what the text reads, he's not necessarily clued into God's plan here of, of using his sin to bring about judgment on the whole of people because they are fallen and broken in rebellion as well. And as he's looking out, he's, he's, he grew up as a shepherd. And as he looks out, he, he sees them as like sheep before the slaughter. And he's like, this is my fault. I don't know about you, but I've had times in my life where I thought my sin was going to be this big. And then I look at the destruction that it's caused others, that it's caused me. And I'm like, how did I get here? How did this happen? How did this go from something I thought I have control over to totally out of my control. He sees a guilty people and we see a guilty king who is unable to lay his life down for his sheep. Samuel has pointed this out over and over again. We need a better king than David. We need a better king. Now we need a better king. David was the best that Israel had to offer. And still we need a better king. We need King Jesus. We still are a people that are guilty of sin. But we need a king who isn't guilty. We need a king who is innocent. We need a king who is perfect. We need a king who is sinless. In John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. King Jesus not only was willing to lay his life down like we see David pray here, but he was able to do it. 
He was able to lay down his life and actually be the sacrifice that people needed to take God's judgment and wrath from them and take it on himself instead so that we might receive the righteousness of God, the life of God and be saved. God in his mercy, because he was grieved of our sin, sends his son to take on the wrath that sin deserves. Romans 6, 5 says this, if we have been united with him, with Jesus, like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. The only one that has a true right assessment of sin and how far reaching it is, is God. And in his mercy, in his power, he sends his son to save us, to take on the full weight of what sin could dish out. And that whoever believes in him might be saved. The chapter in the book close in an odd fashion. It, it still, it, do, it, it doesn't feel like the climax to the end of the story. And part of that is the whole, it's not in chronological order. Um, and the author has arranged it in a way to really bring to light some truths about God. But it still details, the end of this passage details the fallout from the plague. And there's this, there's this series of events of this like transaction that happens between David and this man Aronah. Twice in the chapter, it actually talks about how this happened, then the Lord stopped the plague, or then the Lord, the Lord ended the plague. Two times. And you could read it and be like, wait, didn't the plague already end? Why is it now later saying the plague ended again? But we see circumstances that happen around each time it says the plague ended. The first time, it talks about God being grieved, and then David prays, and the plague ends in that section. Then at the end of the, the book, we see God gives instructions to David to build this altar on the threshing floor of Arnaut and af offer a sacrifice to him. David follows through with, with God's instruction. And when, God, when David offers the sacrifice, then the plague ended. And I think this points out a couple cool things. For one, we see in both those instances, which are probably more congruent, that it's like God being grieved, David praying, the altar, all of that, and then the plague ends, not two separate times. But we see God inviting man into the salvation of his people. We see God hearing David's prayer. We see God responding to the sacrifice, but we see that it first starts with God himself being grieved and doing something about it, but inviting David to participate. As Christians, we too have been invited to participate with the Lord in the salvation of many. Jesus said to his disciples, go to the nations, baptizing and teaching what I have commanded you and know that I will be with you always to the very end of the age. We see here with David, God bringing man into the process, into his kingdom work. But it also points us to the, the participation of the Trinity, specifically here, the Father and the Son. We see the father's heart grieve that he so loved the world that his son was the sacrifice that the world needed. We see that, that um, 
The son cries out with the prayer, the anointed one, and the father hears and accepts the prayer. Jesus cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The father hears the voice of his anointed. The sacrifice David makes requires this back and forth between um, this man, Aronah. Uh, when David first asks for this land to build this altar, Aronah has this cool response, this like faith-filled response of just, I'll give it to you. Like, just take it. I'll give you whatever you need to have this thing come about. But David counters his offer. And if you're into dealings, this is not usually a good counter offer to make. David does this in verse 24. But the king replied to Aronah, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I imagine them like playing poker. And then one guy's like, no, I'm going to fold. I don't got anything. And the other guy's like, no, actually I'm going to raise it and I'm going to lose so that you get the whole pot. Right? He's like, I, I want this to cost me something. I won't sacrifice something to the Lord that costs me nothing. Earlier in, in the text, we see that David outwardly has this, has this good deed of this census, but inwardly something is off, something is wrong. David here wants his heart to be connected with his actions. He doesn't want this sacrifice to cost nothing. And again, this points us to Jesus, the perfect sacrifice it cost him his life. It cost him, him who knew no sin to become sin. When Jesus is on the cross, he doesn't, I heard Tim Keller say this once, a pastor in New York, he doesn't cry out the, the nails, the nails in my hands and feet, but, but he cries out, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It cost Jesus everything to take on our sin and die on the cross. One of the cool things that 2 Samuel does here in pointing us forward, because David's story doesn't end in 2 Samuel, you got to keep reading 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and then get all the stuff in, in 1 and 2 Chronicles, and spoilers, it doesn't get any better. It gets a lot worse. There's no king as good as David, even though we've seen that David wasn't a very good king, that he let down his people, that he rebelled against God too. But the building site of this sacrifice, this altar that David makes, ends up in the future being the building site of the temple that his son Solomon creates to the Lord. This new way that God was going to dwell with his people. It was like the, the jewel of, of Jerusalem was this temple. But the temple, doesn't, it doesn't stop there. The temple then points to Jesus, who is going to be the perfect temple that was going to be broken, that was going to be destroyed, but then three days later would be rebuilt, his resurrection. And it doesn't stop there because Jesus' resurrection pointed to a new temple that we experience today. As we now, for those who believe in Christ, are the temple for the Holy Spirit, for God's own presence to dwell in us, broken, sinful people, and yet God redeems and restores and makes us his place of dwelling. Second Samuel ends with a glimmer of hope pointing towards the future and the redemptive plan that we now get to experience. And we still offer sacrifices today, but it looks very different than in David's time. 
Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It's just been so clear to me in our cultural moment right now how important it is for us as believers to die to self. Sin and the love of self gets in the way of so many things. And the Lord here says, in light of the mercy that you've received, because God has been merciful to you in light of that, because you will, you will die a physical death, you won't die a spiritual death. Offer yourselves up to the Lord as a holy and pleasing sacrifice to die daily, to pick up your cross, to die to sin, to die to self, and to live for his kingdom. Last year, I think it was last year, Greg and I were at a conference, the Gospel Coalition Conference in Indianapolis, and uh, Pastor John Piper was teaching. And uh, he was speaking out of this passage of pick up your cross and, and follow me. And he was talking about the need for a believer to die to self. And, and he talked about each believer's morning should go like this. You wake up, you go to the bathroom, you look in the mirror, and then you say, you're dead. And he kept like building it up. He kept going, and that's kind of weird to yell out here um, as it's projected to our neighbors. Sorry, neighbors. Um, But he he would just get louder and louder, like, you're dead, you're dead. So Greg and I took him literally. Um, So then throughout the rest of the conference, sometimes it was how we said goodnight to each other. Sometimes it was how we said good morning. Sometimes it was just leaning over next to the other during a forum or during a seminar. And we'd go, you're dead. And just tell each other, or we'd yell at each other, you're dead, right? And, and while we were being funny, there's this truth there for believers that I think is so important. As a community of God's people, are we reminding each other daily when we gather together that this is not our home? That this is not where our hope is, is, is found in this life? Are we reminding each other that we have died to the ways of this world and now we are united with Christ's resurrection, that this life isn't as good as it gets? During everything that's going on in our world right now too, are we helping each other to see what actually matters, the Lord's kingdom, the Lord's ways, and not our personal kingdoms that we love to construct, that we love to build? But it's God's ways and it's God's kingdom that actually lead to life now and forevermore. Many of our kingdoms have been shaken, have been rattled, and we find out that what we build is really like a house of cards that easily just gets knocked down by the the smallest gust of wind. And yet the Lord's kingdom is unshakable. And as brothers and sisters, we remind one another whose kingdom we truly belong to, that we are dead to this way of living, but alive in Christ. Samuel concludes with God being the only one who is able to perfectly hold the tension of justice and mercy a tension that we get uncomfortable with, but yet we need God to be this way. In a world right now that is crying out about injustice, we need God to be just. And we also need him to be merciful. If we want judgment to fall upon this earth, 
if we want people to be set straight, if we want people to follow what we think is good, we fall under that same judgment too. We need the mercy of the cross. We need the salvation of the cross. We need the God who is is loving and compassionate, abounding in love and, and abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. We need him to be that. Two things, just to conclude our time in 2 Samuel, or first in 2 Samuel, in the book of Samuel as a whole. Um, kind of takeaways for us. I know that this hasn't been the easiest text to march through. It, it is easy in one sense of its narrative, which can be really helpful for visualizing and seeing the story. But sometimes in First and Second Samuel, it's kind of like, what do I do with this? Like, how do I respond to this? I, I don't know if I necessarily see the application or it just feels like gnarly story after gnarly story. What do I do? One thing I see here is Jesus is clearly in the Old Testament. As we worked through First and Second Samuel, I saw Jesus just show up in new ways that I hadn't seen before as we sat in this text. I see that God always had Jesus in his plan. And that should encourage us. That God isn't, isn't just like piecing this thing together. He was not surprised about this pandemic. He always has Jesus in his plan and in his mind and is always pointing us back towards him. And maybe that was harder for you to see this time and that's okay. There's going to be new things that I see the next time I read 1st or 2nd Samuel as well. That is what God does with his living and active word. We don't always get it the first sweep. We never get it the first sweep. We don't get it the 24th, right? It's just continually refining and renewing us. And we get to taste and see that, that he is good all the time. The other thing that I see from 1st and 2nd Samuel is sin is a destroyer. Sin destroys. First and second Samuel is so sad because we see a hero that we can get behind in David. We love David at the beginning. We love that he kills giants. We love that he does it for, for the Lord. We love that he often is just giving God praise after praise and, and, and acknowledging him that he's humble. But then our hero takes a drastic turn when we see that he's just as selfish He takes just as much as every other king and that he too struggles with sin and with evil. It's depressing. It it makes us go, can we actually trust anyone (laughs) to some degree? And that is the purpose of 1 and 2 Samuel. We need to have our trust in the Lord because sin is a destroyer. Sin wants to take and take and take. And we need a good king that is actually for his people and for his glory, that is the servant king that we see in Jesus. We can never do a right sin assessment. And yet God is a redeemer. God is the only one that can take all the destruction we see in First and Second Samuel and include it in his plan and save people through it. I'm going to end um, after we sing a bit uh, with one more thing for us to think about as we leave today. But as we sing, and the band can come up now, as we sing, um, I keep thinking about that word security, of where do we find our security? 
And as we sing, I just encourage you to, to pray, to call out to God using these words and for God to continue ref, continually refine where we find our hope, where we find our security and that it would be in him. Would you pray with me? God, I, I thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. And I, I, I just admit, God, that I can't always see it. In my flesh, I get worried. I get anxious, God. I get angry. I get afraid. And, and I want to put my trust in so many other things. God, would you help us to find our security in you and you alone? Help us not to be not to find ourselves crumpling, find ourselves ourselves hopeless, Lord, because we find out that ultimately we, we had our trust and our security in something else. Lord, help us to, to firmly place our feet on the rock that is Christ, a firm foundation. Thank you, Lord, for using First and Second Samuel to show us the, the effect of sin how weighty sin actually is, how, how much of a destroyer it is, and that ultimately in that, you took that on for us in Christ. Help us to be quick to repent, Lord. Help us to continually come before you and cry out for help as David did over and over again. And God, help us to see Christ. As we read scripture, help us to see him in the text in this world, Lord, as we walk day in, day out, God, would we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us not to look to the left or the right and to to be troubled by wind or waves, but instead that that would just draw us to Christ all the more. Lord, we need your help to follow you, to live as your kingdom people here in this broken world. Would you help us, God, to consider others better than ourselves. More important, Lord, would you help us to die to self so that we might live for you. In your name, amen. Um, the last thing uh, I just want to leave us with from First and Second Samuel is, is the question of where is your hope? Um, in, in 1 Samuel 8, it just it's such a picture of us as people, that the people cried out that they wanted a king. They wanted something that they could see to put their trust in. They wanted a person or something in their, their image that, that they could put their hope behind. They wanted to be like the other nations. And ultimately in doing so, they said, God, we don't trust in you. We trust in what we can understand and what we think we can control. And we saw that that king took and took and took. And that David ultimately took and took and took. And every king, if we kept on reading, we're not, we're, we're going on to First Peter. Um, if we kept reading through First Kings and Second Kings, we would see every king after takes and takes and takes. There is major fallout when we put our hope in something other than the Lord. And there's many things in, in our world right now that are crying out for us to put our hope in, in it instead. 
And, and even though there's good things, there's good things to support, there's good things to be behind. The world is crying, for, crying out for us to put our hope in, in anything else but God. As believers, we stand in the gap where we say, no, our, our king, our true king is Jesus. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He's the only one who's going to be a firm foundation for our feet. This is uncharted territory for, for us as, as, as people, as believers. And the only way through is to stand on the rock that is Christ. And we follow him into, into glory too. We follow him now into eternity where all things are made new, where the king on the throne is Jesus and every tear is wiped from our eyes. There's no more pain. There's no more sorrow for the past things have been done away with. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, where is your hope? Is it founded and is it built on Christ? We are going into 1 Peter next week. It would be, it's not a very long book. It's in the New Testament. Uh, it would be helpful for you probably to read it this week, um, to take some time or read it over the next couple weeks. Uh, it's very different literature than, than what we've just been in in 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, and we're excited to move into that next season for us as a church.